Hey everybody, it's Richard Harris and Scott Lees with another episode of the Surf and Sales podcast brought to you um, for the month of March uh, from Lead411, Gong.io and Salesforce Revenue Cloud. We appreciate all of our sponsors who help support the sales community in, in multiple ways, whether it's content or their actual services. So please be sure to check those folks out and give them some love and some support. I'm super excited today because um, I think this makes it like eight to two because if I'm not mistaken, Ken, you went to you went to U of A, right? That is correct, my there friend. There you go. That's so Scott, I don't even know if Scott even saw that yet. I was like, no, I didn't guess. see. Of course, I didn't see that yet. All I know is now you're just like calling up the University of Arizona alumni network, trying to figure out who you can get on the show. Why wouldn't I? <laughs> like, what's wrong with that? So, um, so anyway, our our guest today is Ken London. Uh, who is president of, is it Ken London? And Enterprises? it's super, super, super complicated, right? Super complicated. So he's also, he's also a bodybuilder. So we're, I know we'll talk about that in competition yeah. and mindset and things like that. Um, and then, you know, Scott didn't hear this part. I, I definitely want to dive into this too, which was um, Ken's had to declare bankruptcy. And I, you know, we were saying offline that like, that's a real sales slump. Like that ain't a slump. That's like, you know, the outcome of a slump. So uh, Ken, thank you so much. And, and before we jump into talking about all this awesome stuff, what, um, not that bankruptcy is awesome, by the way, <laughs> what- um, Bro, got people, me where I am today, man. Yeah, give people a little bit of background on, on you know, what, what you currently do as a role and sort of where your, where your kind of answers come from. We want people to have context of who you are based on the experiences you had. Perfect. Well, I appreciate that. Well, you know, it's funny, Scott and I were actually going back for us on Twitter working on this kind of, hey, if you were going to do an opener on a podcast, so Scott and I hit each other on messaging. So Scott, we'll have to see if this works as well in like live as it did in a, you know, a tweet. So, you know, kind of who I am, I'm a sales consultant and advisor for B2B companies. We've got a team of people who are, you know, breaking that traditional ineffective sales consulting model um, and working on being a fitness junkie who gets to see the sunset from every continent. So that's kind of who we are and where we're going. I mean, ultimately it's, you know, it's like a lot of people in our position, I guess we've just seen a lot. So came out of the world and uh, was selling intangible products uh, early on with, as a stockbroker and those old days, you know, stick your feet up on the desk, put the phone in your lap and dial from a reverse directory. Um, so certainly did it the old ways and just from sales, sales leadership, kind of all the way through have had a whole bunch of, uh, fun times where we've done some great things and, you know, taken some lumps and some real, real freaking punches over the years. So um, it's all based on real life experience. And then we kind of just take that whole darn thing and we go, what worked, put it into best practices. So we have repeatable systematic processes. Go ahead, Scott. You look like you were going to say something. Yeah, I was. And then I, and then I thought you, you were going to, um, I want to, I want to start with the bankruptcy situation. If you, if you don't mind. What, sure. I think a lot of people don't understand what declaring bankruptcy means. Yeah. So maybe you can just start there and just say, you know, what is, what is the truth about bankruptcy? Like, what does it mean? And, and yeah. let's see if we can dispel some myths about it. Okay. Um, so I think it's interesting because I think there's two types of bankruptcy, right? And there is, and I, I mean, there's probably a trillion of them, but there are two types that I see. So one of them is the company who strategically chooses to do a chapter X, Y, or Z because they're getting rid of some debt and restructuring and doing some stuff. Then there's 98% of the rest of us. 
right? There's all the rest of us who are in businesses, sub 50 million bucks. Um, and it's a gut-wrenching, extensive, multi-year period of um, lows followed by lower lows, followed by how do you pick yourself up off the mat? Um, it's, a, it's an incredibly interesting kind of set of decision-making that you go through to determine that's the best path, which I'm more than welcome to talk about. Um, and I, I think where I think people, where I think a lot of businesses don't see it and a lot of people don't understand is, um, yeah, it can be a necessary evil and yeah, it can actually be freeing to some extent of some of the things you could have never, ever, ever got out from under. Um, but it's what's at risk for most business owners. It's what's at risk for people who aren't managing things, for people who go to a fintech startup, for whatever you go out on your own. Um, and the biggest thing I think we misunderstand is we talk about it as a thing. And when you really look at it, it's the one thing in business that truly affects your entire immediate family. So if you're giving advice to people like Richard and I who run our, our own businesses, yeah. I mean, what, are, what do we need to make sure we don't do so mm. we can avoid bankruptcy? Is it just getting, is it just overextending yourself, getting way ahead of your, your, your skis? Like what, um, what is it? What, what, ha what happened maybe? Yeah, I think yes and no. So see, I bought, so my, like the short end, the short version of my story is I was part of a company where I was in a um, Inc. 500 management team who'd grown a company from sales in like Phoenix, Arizona from 2 million to a national chain of, of businesses that were at about 80 million about four years later in total sales. And um, so it was growing fast. And then there's this corporate owned location. And so I buy it from, I buy it from ownership and I come out here to Atlanta, Georgia, um, buy that thing. And then we do pretty all right. I mean, we grow the, we grow the company about 300% over three, three and a half years. I think some of the, 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 probably the biggest lessons I've learned now, this is like, you, we could do 22 podcasts on this. Cause I call it my $750,000 at real life MBA. Um, and ultimately, it is a couple of things. It's people underestimate the actual cost of fixed costs or step up costs. You don't understand that there's, you know, building a variable cost model in a business is, is got a lot of benefits, even if it costs a little bit more. Because as an example, we were growing so fast, I bought more warehouse space and I bought more inventory and I, you know, all these kind of things. And so people, people think when they're trying to grow a business that it grows like this, kind of in this steady arch. And what it actually does is it's a series of step-up costs. And so, you know, my revenue may be anticipating to grow by 3 million. My step-up cost might've been 2 million, you know, or whatever the number is, because you don't get to a lot of times if you're trying to add capacity, you know, you, you can't add that. So I think step-up costs is one that does get you out over your skis. And I think when you look at that, you know, that for me, it all started with 08, 09. Um, and you know, my ex-wife, she'll say, Oh, you know, but everybody got caught up in that. Well, I've still got buddies who are in the same business I was in 12 years later. So I have a hard time as an owner thinking about that. I think the other thing is overconfidence, feeling that you've got the things so dialed in that nothing can go wrong. Like understanding the risks and the variable options and the things that could go sideways. Um, I was listening to, Oh, what's the name of his book? 
just listening to a book recently and they said, actually, it's one of the things that's interesting. Entre- really successful entrepreneurs are actually risk averse. Yeah. They plan for all the negatives and they have lots of options in the world until they find the one. Whereas a lot of high flyers and you know, that are right in space at the tech seller, they're right in space at the you know, Atlanta tech village or whatever, they got the one idea and they can't see any of the risk. So I think there's a, there's a long-winded answer, so I apologize for that. No, it's great. It's great. I actually want to hit on, man, I wrote down like three or four things. If you see me looking away, it's because I'm writing notes. Um, okay, cool. I want to hit on the, the, the steps of growth, the growth mm-hmm. steps, I think, I think is what you called it. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you have a change now where it's not so much growth at all costs the way that it yeah. used to be. And I wonder if that's part of the learning process potentially and part of the, the freedom of you know, running your own business and not be, being beholden to yeah. a brand or a boss or anything like that. Yeah, so I think, um, so it's interesting. So the answer is probably sort of, but not really. How's that for a freaking specific, right? So, um, sure. Cause I, because my philosophy in general, like just look at how we consult for companies. My philosophy in general is sales should be putting so much pressure on the organization that it has to become operationally more efficient. Okay. So that's first. So I believe you lead with sales all the way back to, you know, good old Zig Ziglar back in probably the eighties was, you know, nothing happens till a sale happens. So still believe in that philosophy. The issue becomes in how you scale into it. Um, so I think for me personally, and what I've seen with businesses, you know, if I, if I was, if we were advising, right, there are a series of decisions every single day that we can make that will have a short-term cost or a long-term cost associated with it. From a short-term perspective, I'm willing to overpay to not be committed to it for a long time until it proves out that it's going to be successful long-term. Yeah. So you would overpay in the near term to make sure it proves out before investing in the long term. So can you give yeah. an example of that? Like what's the, talk about that a little bit. Like where have you seen it? Is it, sure. you know, is it, I overhire two or three salespeople knowing that in three to six months, I may have to cut them back, right? What is, what is that kind of, what do those mean for you in a practical world based on your experience yeah. or even your client's experience? Yeah, so a couple of things. So one is um, I generally hire salespeople in twos. Yes. Um, I, because I just, you know, it's a you're hedging your bet a little bit, but I think if you have a good sales process and it becomes le- or a good sales process, hiring process, Richard, I know you probably believe that that it becomes less of a bet, you know, whereas everybody well, it's, else it's, feels it's like more it's cost crap. effective, right? Yeah, my yeah, time, yeah. My... The onboarding, all that, right, right, right. 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 Yeah, so um, so I think that's true. So you can certainly that's a place, but I would say like um, you know, and apply these things like as we talk about this. Hopefully, the listeners are applying them to where it can fit in their world. So, as an example, we're very, very fortunate and growing pretty quick right now. Um, I'm willing to overpay on an hourly rate for a copywriter rather than to hire an internal copywriter, right? I'm going to end up paying 150 bucks an hour or whatever the number is, and you can obviously get those numbers lower in the gig economy and Fiverr and all these things out there, Upwork, whatever. But I'm willing to overpay on that before I need that internally. And as an example, we write a ton of messaging for our clients, but I'm still like, is that, is that the service that's going to need to come? And so I think that's where the, like the, especially the gig economy had kind of started 
you know, a few years ago, but COVID really kind of pushed it to the forefront and it made the number of resources available substantially higher. And so I think that's probably one of those places where, you know, or it's an idea of instead of maybe buying the real estate, I'm going to lease over here on a shorter term. Now I'm going to overpay if I want to go into a dead commercial space for a year and not a five-year contract, but at least I have outs and I won't be wrong. You know, and so there's some of that just like not being so arrogant to be like, oh yeah, it's just going to go forever. We're cool. That stuff yeah. just doesn't work. I want to, I, I want to push on that too, because I, you know, I say everybody wants to go better, faster and cheaper, but yeah. they could rarely do all three. What they, yeah. what they really think is that, you know, if I go uh, faster and cheaper, it'll be better, which is not the case. Right. Um, yeah. To your point, you overpay to, you know, get you there faster but you can pull the plug later, you know, if you need to. Um, yeah. It's interesting too, because, um, you know, your, the, the comments around arrogance is I'm reading this book. I don't know if you read the book, um, What I Learned Losing a Million Dollars. And it's about I this written guy. I, what's that? I said I could have written it. Go ahead. <laughs> exactly. That's what made, when you said 750, I'm like, oh, I know. this. And the guy was a commodities broker and, you know, all through the mercantile exchange in Chicago and all this stuff. And, he realized that he was not good at being a trader. He was terrible. He was just lucky to be in the right place at the right time and navigate those things. Um, sure. and, and he talks about it all through his career. And so he finally had to go learn how to be good, right? Yeah. And so how do you value or perceive, you know, confidence versus arrogance, right? Yeah. And because those, those two things, they're both very important. But you got to sort of find the, the, the line in between the two as best you can. Yeah. I think confidence comes back to humility. You know, it's just like, you know, instead of having that attitude of, hey, I'm tired of talking about me, you talk about me. You know, it's like, <laughs> we don't want to be in that spot. And I think a lot of times, you know, it's, it's the ability, like, you know, it's kind of what we back to. Are you seeing all the potential negatives? And if you weigh all the potential negatives, there's less than a 1% chance. Well, first of all, you're not confident, you're arrogant. You know, and I think um, it's funny. I was having the exact conversation. People are, again, once in the place, in some of the business world and other places, are starting to mistake being in the right place for being good. Because I had that, I literally had the conversation with some people at dinner um, on Saturday. And the conversation was, man, so my broker five years ago recommended instead of paying for my stuff with cash or a loan to take out margin on my stock account. Okay. It's a fantastic idea if you can predict the stock market's going straight up because you'll never have a margin call and stuff. It's a horrible idea if the market's going down because you'll be forced to sell at lower prices. We don't want to get sideways into stocks here probably, but you know, go look it up if you're looking. But they were saying the broker's brilliant. And I'm saying, look, he's, he's in a good market and the advice worked. But today with a frothy market, is it still good advice? You know, I don't know the answer to that. How many times do you have to find yourself in the right place before you could call yourself good? Maybe, maybe just being good at being in the right place. That, that's good. certainly a skill set I'm trying to acquire. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just... <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a former soccer player, um, who would do all the work on defense and then watch the forward just like randomly be in the right place and have to tap the ball in and get yeah. all the glory. All right. I'm just thinking to myself, well, 
that guy just randomly was in the right place. But if you're in the right place all the time, that's a, that's a skill. So maybe, maybe we are good at that. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, maybe. You know, and I don't think at the end of the day, like, you know, we're discussing this. We're three, we're three guys, two of us pretty looking, good looking like Richard and I. And then the other one, well, you know, Scott, I'm sorry, brother. You just didn't win the genetic pool, but it's the U of A, but it's the U of A handsomeness. <laughs> we're three, you know, we're three guys just talking about this and I don't have a market on that. Otherwise I'd have never been, I'd have never had to file bankruptcy and I'd have never gone and gone through some of the adventures I've been through. And yeah, if you can be good, be good. You know, I think Warren Buffett says, you know, you only, <laughs> you only got to be right once. You know, if you're right once and it's big enough, you don't have to be right again. So I think, so Scott, I'll, cause I know you, right. And I know how you prepared as a soccer player and as a tennis player. Right. And agreed. Sometimes the forward is in the right place at the right time, but that person probably prepared too. Right. And there's a little bit of forethought of thinking, well, where's the ball going to go. Right. Sure. And then also making sure he doesn't get off sides and all those things. And so I, I talk about this a lot that, you know, the difference between good and luck is that, and there's no real such, I mean, luck is when you win the lottery, right? Luck's when somebody answers the phone on a phone call on a cold call, but you know, you also have to prepare to, for those moments to occur. You have to be aware and awake in the moment so that you can spot it. Right. You have to have, you know, gone into some level of mental or self coaching, and then you have to expect the good result, right? Like, so you have to expect that, Hey, if I go here, then I'm providing myself the opportunity to score that goal. If I say this, when I hear this objection. So to me, that's what luck feels like is that you, you prepare for it. And then, you know, again, it's the opportunity knocking on the door. Um, I want to, I want to come back to you, Ken. I want to talk about the emotional and mental piece of having to declare bankruptcy. Like that is, I can't even imagine like, what does that do to one's self-esteem Maybe, maybe you're capable of like, yeah, no big deal. Right. Um, but what does that, what's that mean? Like, what's it feel like and how do you try to navigate it or, or how would you navigate it differently this time? So uh, the best way to probably tell you how this, how it feels is to give you two, two quick stories of that school. Um, so one of the stories is, so back when we were going, back when this process was kind of in the, we were in the midst of this process, this was back when they were lying, like for those who remember back in like nine, 2009, 2010, they were saying you could refinance your mortgages and that kind of stuff at a much lower rate in some program, right? Federal government ran it out. Everybody was a part of it. Um, they're doing this, but you had to be 90 days late on your mortgage in order to do it. And so you literally can go from, hey, I'm paying everything on time, but it sucks, to, gosh, I got to wait 90 days, which starts this whole other thing of foreclosure and other things happening. So we were in, in negotiations with the bank at that time to get this done. So it's uh, the first week of Christmas, first week of December leading up to Christmas. Um, you know, we got yards manicured, Christmas tree up in the house, you know, little blow up dolls in the front yard kind of thing. And somebody comes to the door and they knock on the door. Um, my, at the, at the time, so McKenna comes in. I think McKenna was nine or 10 at that point. And uh, McKenna comes in kind of leaning up against me. He wants to see us at the door. Um, and the guy who came to the door, he was, one was standing here. Another guy was standing up in the driveway and he comes, they both look very confused. You know, house is taken care of them there. Uh, and he came up and told us um, that he had bought our house in an auction the day before. Uh, and so I took that news with my, you know, nine or 10 year old on my hip. 
uh, and we had to be out by New Year's. And because oh. the paperwork stuff had gotten lost, right? Like oh, the thing gosh. where the bank is supposed to be working with me had essentially disappeared. Did you believe so, him? Were you like, get out of here? What, what's, what was your first reaction? Did, yeah, I mean, it took a second because we knew we were going through the process with the bank. So I'm like, like, tell me about that. What's how, where'd that come from? I didn't know. Is he like, how do I, the homeowner, I have no idea this is actually happening. Right. In theory, you see in the movies where, you know, some sheriff comes and sticks a sign on your door, you know, and, and um, so it ended up happening. So imagine taking that call three weeks before Christmas or taking that visit three weeks before Christmas, your middle child on your hip and having to tell your family that you got to move. So, yeah, so that was the first. And the second one was just to give you the total emotional context. Um, our church does a great job of kind of videoing, like when kids are going to get baptized. So the short story is my then probably 15 year old McKenna, same child is getting recorded in this video. And so they want to talk about what led you to your relationship and all the stuff that you do in church and quote unquote. So we're sitting in church in front of God and everybody see what I did there. That was funny. So in front of God and everybody, and in this video playing in front of, you know, I don't know, 500 people or whatever it was, she says, and then we lost our house. And that was the start of the bad. So yeah, like it makes me choke up now. So I don't know if I can do any better job of relaying the difficult decisions that go with having to file bankruptcy. Um, it's, it's a stage of life. It requires you to be okay with just it, it kind of admitting defeat. Um, which I wasn't good at. And I found out how good I wasn't at it when I took my next job because <laughs> I figured out I had kind of turned into an asshole over the last few years. So um, yeah, so that's, I don't know if that, does that answer the question? How did you Richard? navigate that? Like, how did you, how do you, I mean, again, it's, uh, how do you explain that to your family? Like, how do you, you know, what do you say? And I'm, I'm not trying to push you into a negative space. I want to understand. No, I could cry. How do you handle good bad ratings. advice with your loved ones? Because I think it's happening. You know, it happens on a regular basis. Yeah, I think it does too. And I think part of it, I had kept, at least at then, my now ex-wife, but um, my wife at the time, had kept her kind of in the loop on what was happening. Um, and she actually gave me some great advice a year earlier, which... I don't know. It didn't feel great then, but a year earlier, she's when we were, we were grinding it through, it was 2010. And she said, look, you're miserable. Either find a way to enjoy this again, or you got to get out. Right. And then it took me another year to be, you know, to continue to be miserable before we finally pulled the plug. But um, yeah, it's hard too. I think the hardest part is we think we can shield our kids. You know, so if you talk about the, bankruptcy itself. And then you talk about, you know, I got divorced probably three years ago. You think your children don't see it. And what you find is they're incredibly perceptive little suckers. Um, so yeah, the, it's just, it's, it's, it's open. It's honesty. We turn it into discussions about life, you know, about the types of things I can tell you right now, McKenna, who was in both those stories is 21 now. And um, she bought a car for, I don't know, 10, 11,000 bucks um, about eight months ago. And it's almost completely paid off. Yeah. I was just sitting here thinking, I wonder if this has changed and framed your conversations with your kids and your kids' relationships to finances and money. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe they're way more informed and educated than 
you or I were, right? Yeah. And if and if you if you talk to them about this kind of stuff, um, I think that's that's super relatable for a lot of us who are, you know, a little earlier in the parenting phase uh, yeah. than you are. Richard and I both have two boys that are well, mine are thirteen and eleven. I think Richards are twelve and ten, right? So we're yeah. I know that that he and I talk to our kids about money and finances a little bit in ways that I never got talked to. Um, so I'm wondering, it sounds like that had a big impact on at least one of your kids. Yeah, I think that's, and I think that's true. And, you know, my, my dad, you know, is retired military served, you know, served for I don't know, 20 plus, 20 plus years in the air force. And, you know, it didn't probably same generation. Like we didn't talk a lot about that kind of stuff, you know, and I was always that kid, like from college on, I'm going to make a million this year, you know? And so, I, you know, I didn't mind, I didn't mind rolling the dice, but, oh, excuse me, but after rolling the dice, you know, every now and then you get punched, but so it was, yeah, we, it's, it's framed that my youngest daughter, so I've got three kids, my youngest daughter, Riley, she, um, she likes her nice things, but she never gets ahead of herself. She always wants to be able to pay cash for it. She's, you know, she saves, she's a bargain shopper. Now, Col- you know, Coulter, my 25 year old, all bets are off. The money burns holes in his pocket. Like literally, I saw flames. I mean, it was horrible. So, I want to, I want to, I want to pull us out of this and 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 hit on a, a different topic that I don't know if the world is ready to have this conversation yet, but we're going to have it anyways. Those are my favorite kind. Yeah. So I want to know if the VP of Sales and the CRO is going extinct. And here's hmm. what I mean by. That. There's people who are, I don't, I don't know how old you are, but I'm, I'm 43. There's people who are 10 years younger than me who have been a VP of sales one time and they sort of have already retired from the role yeah. because, you know, it sucked, right? Mm-hmm. Even though they did kind of well, now they're like, you know, running their own consulting firm or, or, or sales advisory firm or whatever. And they're ahead of sales one time. Um, but it seems like the, it seems like nobody wants to do that job anymore. Right. Or once you've done it once or twice, you're like, that's it. I'm out. It's a wrap. I'm going to like tell other people how to do it. So it has led to this rise of the fractional VP of sales, the fractional CRO, the strategic advisor kind of people, right. Of which I'm one, I know you've been a fractional CRO before. Is the VP of sales, the full-time VP of sales CRO, an endangered species? And what do you like and dislike about the fractional version of, of that role? So one, um, the answer is it can be, and it's on, it's on the VP of sales. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is there are so many people, they aren't curious, they aren't inquisitive, and we've done a poor job of teaching them as they come up through sales management or other things about proper leadership and things. I would argue, and you'll hear me argue it all the time, actually, that the reason the role is so ineffective is because um, we're, they're really good at telling people why they should do something, what it is, but they have no idea to tell them how they can, how they can do it and what to do first. So they have a really, really rough time connecting the theoretical corporate speak junk to tactical actions that will allow an individual rep to be, to be successful. So I'd argue that's why, why the why, death of the role. Hmm? Why, why, why is that though? 
why do so many people have a hard time giving somebody tactical advice and even step-by-step advice, do this first, do this second? Um, I would say primarily because it's one of the few sales in general is one of the few things that your promotion stem from your success as an individual, a hundred percent. So like go into HR, whatever it is, all these other things. And you're used to things being a little systematized and working as a team, maybe even leading a team without an actual management role. Um, and in sales, right. It's the individual contributor. It's usually somebody between a mid performer and a high performer who is told that's the evolution of career progression. And then they go and they got to manage people. And so I think structurally that's the problem. So they've never thought about it. And quite frankly, think about it this way. How many, how many companies now are basically primarily inbound lead flow? Oh, more and more and more. So they don't know how to tell them to go do the thing. And so they, I just, that, that it's, and they, or, or even better yet, here's the best one. They don't think they should have to. I could figure it out when I was in IC. They don't, they don't think they should have to what? Can you elaborate? They don't on think that? they should have to tell anyone. They think they should be able to hire competent people and let them do their jobs. And that, like, here's the deal, right? I just did a post on this on LinkedIn. The number one way to know if there's no real sales process in an organization is if they use these two buzzwords when they're trying to hire micromanager and entrepreneurial. That's what we, <laughs> I'm not a micromanager and I want entrepreneurial people. That is code for put your butt in the seat. I'm not going to provide you any direction. There's no guardrails on performance and you're going to sink, sink or fail by yourself. I, love I, that. I agree. Like I, I've talked about this too, which is part of it is generational, right? Um, you know, as Gen Xers, uh, which I think we all are, you know, I was a latchkey kid and I had to figure it out, right? Nobody taught me shit, right? And unless you went to a big company, there was no management or sales training program, right? It was figure it out. And then the millennials have come along and the Gen Zs because they have more access to education and self-education and understanding what better is, they're, they've forced us to realize that, you know, get over yourselves, people, right? You aren't that smart just because you figured it out by yourself. And in many cases, I say, I've been saying this for a long time, Gen X is jealous of the millennials and Gen Z for all the love and attention and training and coaching that they've gotten that we never did, right? Like what they call coaching and training, I would have felt like was micromanaging. Like it was just sort of built in. So there's this lack of, you know, it's a DNA piece. But then that also means too, because none of us came up doing it and knowing how to do it right. We just did what was taught to us, right? If I yell at my kids all the time, guess what they're going to grow up and do? Yell at their kids, 100%. right? It's the same thing. So I, I see this constantly. Um, and I, it's interesting because I was thinking about, well, wait a minute, that entrepreneurial thing. Well, I do want someone who's entrepreneurial, right? Or I don't want to micromanage someone, but now we have to give those guide rails, Right. There's a difference between micromanaging, which is tell me where we are on that deal versus, hey, we really need to make sure we follow this process because it helps us do this, right? Yeah. And, the, and the piece that, that's missing is the soft skills, right? I had a, had a coach several yeah. years ago. She told me in management, you know, the, the soft skills are the hard skills in management and nobody teaches them, right? Yeah. In, in a good way. Yeah, I think that micromanaging thing, Richard, to end to kind of the point, like the whole micromanaging thing is when we say we don't want to be a micromanager. 
what they're actually meaning is they don't want to manage. And because they don't know the difference between management and micromanagement, yes. that's what that that's what that phrase actually indicates. Totally agree. hundred percent. Scott, when I worked for Scott, we used to have to micromanage people, but it was to the process. It wasn't necessarily yeah. to, yeah. Uh, to, you know, and they, and when they did it, they got better. And it was, it was a very strong coaching more than micromanaging, I would say. Um, yeah. Now you're back. Now you're backpedaling, Richard. You can't just right. call me. You know. It's all right. <laughs> you know, I, st I still have a little PTSD from you being my manager. So um, a little Stockholm syndrome too, since you're still here. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, and the other thing Scott you asked about was, so um, I think the other question was, what don't you like about the fractional VP? Yeah. And the brutal truth yeah. is if somebody could do the job as well as we could, and I, I mean that, I don't mean to do that to be arrogant, but maybe it is. If, if they knew how to connect the how and the now in order to get people to be able to become more than they want, right? What do people want in a leader or a manager? They want somebody who sees a better them than they see in most cases. And so if I can show you how to take that path and take your personal professional goals and show you how the company can get you there, right? And give you a path and be able to effectively, hey, do this, then this. Put the frameworks in place so it's not necessarily 100% scripted, but 75% of the process is played out then that, you know, the best thing about having a full-time head of sales, full-time VP, CRO, or what have you, is their ability to truly connect on an ongoing basis with the people and inside of the culture, you know, because kind of can, for the most part, can, we're hired assassins. Can you huh? do that? Can you do that in a part-time fractional capacity effectively? I mean, maybe, maybe it depends on like what the fraction in fractional is. Like if you're spending an hour yeah. a week, I don't know if you can do that. Can you do that spending an hour a day? Is is fractional three days a week, two days a week, four hours a day? Maybe that's part of the problem is like, what's the definition of a fractional yeah. leader? Because it's different everywhere you go. Yeah, and the, and the problem is, and it's one of the reasons why we changed our go-to-market model, but the problem is in the old time and materials perspective, they judge what they need by fractional by how many hours they're willing to pay for. Yeah. And that has jack all to do with whether or not you're actually going to get ROI. As a matter of fact, yeah. if you, they, they, you know, they do two hours a week instead of 10, they, the ROI is probably not assured. At 10, maybe it's like you're going to get 2x, 3x, no matter what. Yeah. You know, so I think those things are different. But yeah, I think that's, you know, you can do it. We have, you know, one of my consultants is in a head of sales engagement for a year. Um, but I think the way those... The, the other thing in the time, like if you're doing time and materials, it's a fixed number of hours. And if you're doing a fixed number of hours, you run into the simple problem of protecting your hours as a consultant instead of yeah. trying to do what's right for the client. And so like we'll see in an engagement like that where it's a whole boatload of hours in the first two months and the hours decrease as you put all the systems in place. Because you, say, you, can't you, say yes, you say yes to those kind of engagements? I mean, are those kind of engagements even something that consultants want? I would say no. Yeah. Yeah, we do because we have a shared risk reward model. So, you know, we'll say, sure, come on. But here's the deal. Um, we need 12 months and this is, you know, this is what it's going to look like. And, and if you're okay, we'll fix the, we'll fix the price on a monthly basis, but we're going to get a commission on the back end for the way you're extending the runway of the, of the deal. Yeah. 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 Well, I want to change this. Uh, we got a, uh, Time for a little bit more, uh, but quickly another shout out to our sponsors of Salesforce Revenue Cloud, Lead411 and Gong.io. Um, but I have a question for you, totally different than all this, 
but related yeah. bodybuilding. Would you say yeah. you're a professional bodybuilder? Like, do you go out and compete or is this just a passion hobby, but you still compete? Like, how do you, where is this in your life? Yeah, it's funny. So I don't actually was in the house. My girlfriend had talked me into the idea of potentially competing this year. Um, and then you've seen the strap. It's not because it's, it's cause yeah. Yeah. I tore, I tore my bicep doing a five, a 500 pound deadlift uh, Sunday before last. So I would say it's just more, it's a passion, um, you know, and because I just, I don't care if it's bodybuilding or it's what most, I think most people you find who are enjoying some success have something that they're incredibly disciplined ab about and they can figure out ways that they can look for incremental goal setting and improvements. And so for me, that's bodybuilding. Cause I can, like when I went into this, I was in what we call a bulking session. So I'd actually put on 20 pounds on purpose. Right. And then the next session for me would have been a cutting session where I'd have tried to drop body fat while holding muscle mass. And so, um, I love it. I just, and how long have you been doing one, um, off and on a long time, but probably really, really, really kind of back at it serious for probably six or seven years. Right. And talk about the mindset, right? Like talk about the relation to that, to, yeah. um, you know, to sales, obviously that's the purpose of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it does. Well, there's two, <laughs> there's two interesting things and all my, all the people we coach and the salespeople might think I'm horrible, but so one is done is better than perfect. And so, you know, ultimately I think, uh, I think, uh, we'll read from, you know, he stole that from Zuckerberg and, and, uh, done is better than perfect. So there are days when it is just hard to get motivated to go do something where I'm just going to sweat. And I'd rather have a glass of wine, a glass of scotch, a beer, or an entire bag of potato chips. Or all of the above all at once. <laughs> yeah, usually. If I do too many of the drinks, then it's all the potato chips later. So right. um, so done is better than perfect is kind of the first thing. You just got to do the thing. It's like when we talk about sales, the most successful salespeople, it's prospecting and everything else. Not prospecting or everything else. Because I tell every, even in inbound companies, I'm like, look, you're going to be a top rep. 25% of your business should be coming from your own efforts. Right. And so one is done is better than perfect. And I think the second thing from a mindset for specific, I mean, you've got to have, it allows me to play with the agility of responding to different situations. So as an example, it takes a, compl a completely different mindset for me to go and pick up 500 pounds in a deadlift, like to go, to go that heavy or to squat 400 pounds on, on a front squat. So it, it describe, really how do you get yourself there? Like, this is really fast. Like, how do you, yeah. in that moment, I assume you sort of are like, okay, on Sunday, I'm supposed to go do this. So yeah. probably I, I, I assume, you, or, or maybe you do get to the gym and you're just like, fuck, I'm in the zone today. Like talk it happens every now and then. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think so in the gym, the way it is, is so what's interesting is I do it. It goes back to when I used to do my very first cold calls, believe it or not. So I have this thing where I'll tell SDRs and I'll tell teams, I'll say, hey, look, here's the deal. I know cold calling can be monotonous and I don't need you to be dialed in on every single ring as if they're going to answer because we know they're only going to answer seven and a half to 11% of the time. But I need you to be able to flip a switch when it's time to party. And so it's the same kind of thing with bodybuilding. So as an example, like in a really heavy lift like that, I don't need to really psych up for it beforehand. As a matter of fact, psyching up too much actually releases extra cortisol into your body and decreases the impact of bodybuilding. Like getting too like just mentally fired up. 
So that's one. So we'll typically do that. But second is it's, it takes me, say I want to take 10 minutes between reps for a big heavy lift. It just takes me 30 seconds of intense kind of like, here it is. I do some of the stuff that like a Tiger Woods is you've seen, he does where you vision the lift, you know, where you're actually paying attention, where you're kind of forecasting in your mind, what you expect to see happen. And so it's about 30 seconds all the way in seeing the lift and then just going in and executing and not overthinking when you hit the bar. How did like you a lot train of yourself to get there though? How did you yeah. train yourself to do that? Because, yeah. you know, you, I mean, maybe you can turn it. Maybe you are one of those people who can just like, all right, I'm, I'm dedicated now. Right. It's little successes. I think the, the biggest thing about this, right. So I posted like a deadlifting one on LinkedIn where we were talking about that. It's about the goal setting. It's about small successes. So as an example, if you guys have, you guys have got, I've seen this. SDRs today can be an SDR for six months, can be a below average performer and believe that they should be getting their next promotion and then be a VP of sales inside of 18 months. Yeah. You seen that at all? Uh, right? yeah. So, yes, I have. you know, so the, I'll give you an example. So I did my, about a month ago, I did another, it was a deadlift did another max, but my max was 465 beforehand. I did 467. Because that two pounds, which think about that, what's that, a quarter of a percent? Whatever it is, I don't know math unless it's got decimal points and commissions behind it, right? But it's like a quarter of a percent. And so, but for me, that allowed me to then go to the next one where I've added another 10 pounds. And so like you think about it, so go back to when you're just starting, you're in sales, you're in whatever it is. I don't want you to think about it. You just started with a new company. Don't think about closing the deal. Think about winning each successive step, right? Get them into the first call, get them into the demo, get yeah. like win steps in a value aligned way. So that's probably the, the, I think Richard, maybe the best way to say it. It's just, it's, it's little steps at a time because guess what? If you're used to selling a $20,000 product and over and over and over again, you're able to go through the steps and win each step. It's not that any different if the product's worth a million bucks. It's I love just that. all about winning steps. So that's great. I love, I love, that, I love the, that. I love how you phrase it of winning, winning steps. I've, I've mm -hmm. always kind of tried to reframe the always be closing to not be always be closing the deal, always be closing each particular step. But I actually like this winning the steps uh, phrase a lot better. It's a much cleaner. That's great. Perfect. So, so for now, just put, you know, just put at, at Ken Lundin behind it. It's cool. We can, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll co-own it. Cool. ETM. Yeah. Trademark. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Ken, we, we, um, one, I want to give you a chance. Where can people get a hold of you? How to, if they want to, you know, definitely get you in for hiring and consulting and training and all that stuff. Like what's the, yeah, uh, Ken London.com or. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ken London. Yeah. Kind of Ken London.com. It's L U N D I N. So.com. Um, so that's awesome. And then as always, just like you all really active on social yep. LinkedIn in mess in mail, all that kind of good stuff. So here's, so here's our last question for you. What can we help you with? Is there any piece of advice you'd like to ask for? Oh yeah, that'd be great. So what, I, what I'd absolutely love to know from the two of you is what's the biggest change that you've seen in selling over the last 12 months since this whole COVID thing has happened? I thought for sure you were going to ask advice on how I deadlift 500 pounds without tearing oh my. my bicep. So I was prepared. Well, I was going to get into surfing advice, but I knew that I wouldn't understand anything you said. 
Well, come to us with us next November. We've still got some slots open. You should be healed up by then. You know, the next events Perfect. in Costa Rica, November uh, 10th through the 15th. So come on. And ironically, I had my Costa Rica trip canceled because of COVID. So Perfect. So tell, so tell me, what's the biggest change? And the reason I asked, the, the, say it again. The biggest change in the actual selling? Yeah, what do you think is different? And maybe I'll frame it differently. The reason I'm asking is because I, could, I would contend that the only real thing that has changed in COVID, so I want, maybe you guys can argue with me about this. The only thing real change that's changed because of COVID is your buyer's expectation that now you make your bed or clean up your kitchen table before you turn the video on. But other than that, it's mostly it's the same stuff. But um, you guys tell me what you what you've seen different or see changing. I I can go on this. Go ahead, Richard. I've seen people really excel at sucking of an empathy. <laughs> They've gotten really good at being bad at being empathetic. <laughs> they don't understand what that means. They've heard it as a buzzword for the last two years um, and they don't know what it really means to be present in someone else's space. And we've been preaching and, you know, empathy for the last couple of years, at least in the sales training space, but even the trainers I see suck at teaching people what it means to be empathetic. And the hard, the hardest part that people is some people have to be willing to be empathetic. If you're not willing to be empathetic, I, you, I can at least smell the fake empathy, right? And it's not, I'm not talking about, hey, I hope you're doing okay in these troubled times, right? Like that, that started as empathy, but now it's just horseshit. So, well, in the first 2000 in-mails you got on LinkedIn when they started with that, right. that was that, so. So I think, I think people have excelled at sucking at empathy. That's, that's what I've seen in which, you know. Perfect. Like this. On a positive note, this is a switch. I'll be Mr. Positive here, Richard. Um, Highly different than normal. Yeah, I, I think that people have gotten better at sort of um, showing up where, where other people are, building the network, being a part of the community, and then kind of activating that community and that network for referral and, and kind of collaborative selling opportunities, if that makes sense. I, I, I think that um, COVID and the distance and everybody being remote um, was a bit of a forcing function in this regard. And, and it fostered these opportunities for these micro communities and, and, and companies who are selling to the same ICP, but selling different products to get better at introducing each other and, and that whole kind of cyclical piece. It's always, it's always been there, but I think people have figured it, figured it out pretty well uh, remotely right now. And, and I think because everything is so noisy in any other type of prospecting, that if, if I can get an in with Ken, because Ken is a you know, fraternity brother with, with Richard and Richard and I know each other, that type of thing I think people have gotten much better at. And, and I think it's gonna be more and more important because Nobody, nobody wants to pick up the phone. Nobody wants to get your email anymore. Nobody can manage a LinkedIn inbox, even if they try, right? And pretty soon your personalized fancy 
video prospecting message might get drowned out because I got 25 videos to watch today. Now I literally have to watch like an hour of fucking TV to get through all these prospecting messages. So that's going to be my answer, Ken. That's perfect. And then I think the next evolution of that, so here, take this one and you'll make, you, you guys will make some money on this one. And then teaching them to systematize when and how they ask for the referral, because that seems to be the one thing. Everybody's kind of doing it ad hoc, yeah. but there's a really, we've done it powerfully with some, but I would tell you that, take that to the, take that to the teams and they just, it's an awesome way to grow. So yeah, I think that's cool. And yeah, Richard, I've seen that empathy. That's just, it's, are they trying to like, are they trying to do sympathy and then screwing it up and it's coming across as bad empathy? No, I think they're trying to be apathy. I think they're trying yeah. to be manipulative. Yeah. I don't think they're trying to be sympathetic at all. Right. Yeah. So, um, but Ken, thank you so much, man. We, we definitely enjoyed this conversation. A lot of fun chatting with you, getting to know you. Um, and of course in, in, uh, all kindness to Scott bear down. So <laughs> bear down brother. Well, eventually the PAC 12 will have a football team somewhere in the entire conference that can compete since I now live in SEC country. So, <laughs> Awesome, Ken. Thanks so much, bud.